Hey, music lovers, the Cannamom Show podcast in collaboration with Lambkin Guitars is giving away a custom-built, one-of-a-kind electric guitar built by Josh Lampkin. The solid one-piece hemp wood body includes a built-in glass bowl piece. Yeah, you heard me right. You can take a hit and then play a lick. Now's your chance to help the Cannamom Show crush cannabis stigma with your entry. Register for the Hemp Guitar Giveaway online at lampkinguitars.com. That's L-A-M-K-I-N guitars.com. The drawing will be part of a 420 celebration at the Goods Dispensary in Somerville, Massachusetts, where the guitar is on display for the month of April. But don't worry, you don't have to live in Mass or be present to win. Visit LampkinGuitars.com to scope out the Hemp Guitar giveaway details and entry form. You'll even find a video of what could be your guitar in action. L-A-M-K-I-N Guitars.com This is Everything is Personal with Len May. Hey everyone, it's Len May back with Everything is Personal and my lovely, talented co-host, Mr. John Small. You forgot, exceptionally handsome. Oh, did I forget that? Yes. I thought about it and I didn't say it right away, but absolutely. Well, thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Everything is Personal. We have so many things that we want to talk about, but I want to talk about one thing and we'll make it personal. Since everything is personal, I heard somewhere that you got a dog. I did get a dog. I got a puppy. And um, uh, if we're being quite frankly personal, this is day six of puppy ownership, and I am completely stressed out. Um, Getting a puppy is one of the hardest things I've done over the past year, and that is having survived COVID, the pandemic, and the deaths of friends. And I love her. She's gorgeous. Her name is Olive, but uh, it is really like adopting a third child. And uh, we have two cats, and I already have two children. So um, it has been very difficult and not a lot of sleep and I'm quite cranky and I'm going to try to put on my best face for this interview and then I'm going to go and cry. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I do appreciate you, Candon, yeah. being uh, candid with that. But did you get the dog for the kids? Well, that's always the problem, right? Well, <laughs> you get the dog for the daughter who wants the dog and for the wife, honestly, who's like, I think I really need a dog at this stage in my life. And then what ends up happening is the dog is not, it's not easy and uh, everybody wants to not have to deal with it or not deal with it. Everybody's being very loving and she's in a wonderful home, but everybody feels like this is overwhelming and needs help. And including, I'm sure right after this conversation, there'll be an angry knock on my door. Like I need to go and you need to take the, <laughs> take the dog. And we're still figuring out crate training. She's, yeah. I mean, the, the saving grace of this all is she is so wonderful and cute and sweet and it has nothing to do with her she's just a puppy she doesn't she's just being a puppy it's just us not really knowing what we were getting into she's going to fit in just great with this family and everybody who i think gets a new puppy has this bit of a freak out especially if you're not used to being having a dog i haven't owned a dog since i've been in sixth grade so um (laughs) this is very new to me i've had many many cats i'm kind of a cat guy and i just forgot kind of what it's like to have a dog 
But I mean, every day when I look at her little face, I'm like, I'm sorry, all that I have any negative thoughts <laughs> at all. It's you're the best. It's not you. It's me. But having a puppy is not the same as having a dog. It's I a think whole... it's a whole different thing. And I keep remembering <clears throat> that she is going to grow yeah. up and be this wonderful companion that doesn't is not so needy and doesn't poop on the floor every half hour and well, doesn't require training. Yeah, maybe if we're lucky. Um, you gotta you gotta call the dog whisperer. Caesar Milano. I wish, okay. yeah, I wish I knew him. We have another woman, Trudy, who has no moniker like that, but she came in and we've we've already taught Olive how to sit, how to lie down, how to touch our hand. And, you know, she does a lot of good things. She's very, very smart. She's an Aussie doodle, which means yeah. she's an Australian shepherd and a poodle, which is good genes. She's a bright one. She's only eight weeks old, though. Super, super cute. Yeah. So I have a dog, uh, Hershey. So She's always with me. She's actually sitting right here because she doesn't. She's a loyal companion. Oh, she's a baby. (laughs) And she looks like a little Hershey drop. She's always on my lap nonstop. But the dog was my daughter's dog. Since she was little, she wanted to get a dog. And on her 10th birthday, we decided, I decided that we would get her a dog. But before that, she had to volunteer. So she volunteered at a dog rescue for two years and knew how to clean up and everything else. And, she, and Hershey wasn't a puppy. She was about a year old when we got her. But Hershey ended up being my dog, not Sasha's dog. Yeah. So <laughs> that's what always happens. But I didn't want a puppy because <clears throat> when growing up, I had two dogs. They ended up having puppies. So I was, I had six of them, which was the greatest and the worst experience in my life. <laughs> I would come in the kitchen and there, I had poodles. So there would be six tiny little puffballs I would just lay on the floor and it would all lick me. Oh, God. It was fantastic thing the best, ever. The greatest, happiest, yes. It's, it's the greatest, but they are like little kids. They end up crying and it's all night and feeding and, oh, man, it was the worst. But it was also the best. So it, I can relate to your experience. Yeah, and she's just, I mean, when she's licking me and being lovey, I'm like, there's no greater joy than having a puppy just love you and with that, that unconditional love, which we could learn a lot from dog. You know, we could yeah. really learn a lot. You Absolutely. Know. Unconditional love is, uh, is key. I'm, I'm so key. grateful to have mine. Yeah. But we have an agenda. We have things that we really want to discuss. So many things I want to pack in, but I've been getting some feedback and some feedback that I've been getting is, Hey, wouldn't it be better if you guys stuck to a topic? We really want to unpack. Like if you guys are talking music, it's so great. We would really want to unpack that. And the challenge that I have is that I have ADD and it's very, very difficult unless I structure my day Accordingly, it's very, very difficult for me to be able to focus because I have these squirrel moments that come in and I want to talk about this now. So I wanted to kind of briefly talk about ADD so people understand attention deficit disorder or ADHD, attention deficit hyperactive disorder. I have, I don't have the hyperactive stuff. The disorder part really, really trips me up mm-hmm. because I never thought about it as a disorder until you know, doctors told me when I was a kid that it's disorder. Not everything has to be in order because you're disorder. Maybe you're looking at things from a completely different perspective. People like uh, Richard Branson, Picasso, and Picasso is and was an amazing artist. He could paint anything, but because he looked at it from a different angle, he saw a different view of things. Mm-hmm. So looking at things from a different perspective doesn't necessarily have to put you in a box that something is a disorder. I really look at it as a superpower. Mm. However, it does become a challenge if you don't really know what that is. So I want to kind of share my perspective on ADD and maybe get your thoughts on it. 
people with ADD are usually born with a depletion of dopamine. So what happens is your brain is looking for that hit of dopamine on different things. So you're all, you can be a thrill seeker. You know, every single time I go out and jump off a cliff, I get that dopamine. And video game producers, they make video games to be able, and we, we discussed this before, to be able to kind of get kids uh, hooked on the release of dopamine. But my brain is always looking. That's why it's multiple windows, always looking for that next hit of dopamine. It's something that interests me. If you're able to harness that, it's an incredible superpower because you're able to multitask effectively. You're able to look at situations from a complete different angle. So it's very, very difficult to kind of stick to one different thing. And hopefully, you know, people are listening to this, uh, some that can relate to this. And if there is a topic that is of interest that we were discussing, but we sort of took a, a U-turn or, or turned down the side street, maybe they can come back and say, hey, guys, maybe you can dig a little bit deeper into this subject. I really wanted to see if, what you thought about that, if you think that uh, maybe there's an opportunity for us to really focus and have episodes that are just strictly on one topic. Maybe I can start controlling those squirrel moments that kind of fly in my head. <laughs> and by squirrel moments, for those who didn't know, because Len had to explain it to me, it is that dog and up that is talking and all of a sudden squirrel. It's that easily That's distracted, it. right? Well, let me interject here by saying that even though I've never been diagnosed with having ADD, I am pretty much 9.9% .9 sure that I also have ADD. I think a lot of creative people have ADD. A lot of creative men that I've met have ADD. I'm sure women too. My son has been diagnosed with ADHD, which makes me think that it is genetic. I've spent my entire life people telling me that I'm spacey, including my wife, and many other people in my life have always told me that I was spacey. I've also noticed my brother is this way. My father, when he was with us, who was one of the most creative and successfully creative people that I've ever known, who's a film composer and was very successful in this field, but had ADD. So I'm a big proponent of ADD, or not, I guess a proponent is a, is a funny way to put it. I am a very t understanding of ADD and feel that it is not something to be ashamed of by any stretch of the imagination. And it's only recently that I've tried to really actually understand what it is and what's happening to my brain. And I really do appreciate you giving us the short science of it because it is interesting. Just like when I was diagnosed with having general anxiety disorder uh, about 10 years ago, it was interesting for me to put a name to some of the feelings that I felt, right? It, to be able to name it and to know that I'm not crazy. Like this is just a thing mm -hmm. that I happen to have. And it's, it's a brain disorder. And again, that word disorder is a funny word because it makes, it has a negative connotation and it could be right. positive. I would welcome <clears throat> people's feedback. One of the things I love about doing podcasts is that it actually really focuses my ADD brain so that when I'm having a communication with you or an interview with somebody, I'm very focused on that person. And some people who listen to my podcast will say to me, you know, I have another podcast. They'll say to me, sometimes when I listen to your podcast, it actually doesn't really remind me of you because when you, the experience of talking to you is often a little bit like you're sometimes there, sometimes you're not fully focused. And they're like, but when you do your podcast, you are like super focused on your person you're listening to. And it, it's a discipline for me because it forces me to really listen and tune in and not let my ADD brain fly off the handle. They say that people with ADD, when they're able to focus, can focus like a hundred times more than a person that maybe doesn't have ADD. So yeah, you hyper focus. Like, you're exactly. hyper focus. Yeah, you hyper focus on those things. It's first of all, you're absolutely right. There are genes that are related to ADHD and ADD, and they're in the family of the stress or anxiety markers. Mm -hmm. So we've already identified those genes. There is more coming 
it is genetic. Everybody says you had 80 different jobs. Well, it's 80 different jobs because I'm interested in so many, so many different, different things. things. I keep trying different things. So I was an ADD coach for you know some time in my life. And I looked at it as a, an attention deficit. It's an advantage. So I, it's not a disorder. <laughs> it is actually an advantage because I can multitask. And then as you said, I can hyper-focus and be super, super focused, but it takes structure. So there's things that you do in your life to be able to structure those things. And as you said, like doing your podcast, you're hyper-focused on that because you're stimulated. You have dopamine that's being released. You're enjoying what you're doing. Uh, there are sometimes if you're being interviewed and the interview is not going that well or something, sometimes your mind drifts. So you're not being as engaged. But I think we're going to have to be natural and continue having our squirrel moments from time to time. Yeah. And, we'll and I'll, I'll keep you in line and you keep me in line. You know, one of the things about having ADD is that a lot of the rest of the world doesn't have it. And the rest of the world mm -hmm. focuses in a different way and is very frustrated sometimes by dealing with people that have ADD. And mm -hmm. even though I think it's an advantage in some ways, I'm also mindful that the rest of the world might not think the way I think, especially when I'm putting something out publicly. Not that I want to conform to the, the mores and moral and the, the ways that the world does things. But I also have to be sensitive to the fact that if I want to get my message out there, I do have to somewhat conform to the way that people can take in information, right? <laughs> There's a reason why people write down speeches and don't always just say whatever comes to their mind because it can be very hard to track for some people. I find it hard to track someone who's talking to my son because he has it and he can go all over the place in his thinking. So I think there's a way that we have as citizens of this world that we have to sometimes be able to adapt our superpower so that all people can appreciate and understand it. You're right. And holding each other accountable, I think it's, uh, it's yeah. really, uh, really important. I just had a scroll moment as you were speaking. <laughs> uh -oh. <laughs> people cannot see this or people on YouTube will see this. I think I'm admiring your shirt that you have on. I, Do you yes. have a low-end theory? Uh, I have a low-end theory shirt in tribute to what we were going to talk about later. And the low-end theory is a record that was put out by Tribe Called Quest, I believe, in 1990. And not only is this a low-end theory shirt, but it's in Japanese. And it features a woman in a kimono in the same sort of pose as the woman in the original low-end theory. And it's all in Japanese kanji writing. And I just absolutely love this shirt. I got it. There's a wonderful t-shirt store in downtown LA called Tokyo Pop. And they have these incredible Japanese versions of famous record covers. And someday, Len, you and I, when the world opens up, I wonder if Tokyo Pop is open at the moment, should walk in that store. You will freak out because it's everything that we like, but sort of an adaptation into Japanese. I have a Wu-Tang Clan one that's incredible. There's a, a Dr. Dre one. Anyway, it's a really fun, creative store. And uh, I love it. Yeah. Love, 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 love. First of all, <laughs> that's one of my favorite albums of all time. Yes. It's my favorite tribe album. And I'm a t shirt guy. Oh, great. That's all I do is I, wear, I collect and I wear, you know, like we should go in there and buy a ton of shirts and then just do a whole podcast about all the shirts we bought and why we love them so much. It's so, right, I mean, I've got, a, I've got to pull out my drawers. I have like <laughs> five drawers full of t shirts and that. We'll, we'll I have a three, them. they also have a three feet high and rising, which I'll wear next. Um, <laughs> which is also in Japanese and they're all dressed in their kind of like Japanese, like traditional garb. It's so great. Anyway, I love that place and I love Japan. We haven't talked about the fact that I lived in Japan for a year uh, and was just in Japan last, almost exactly this time last year. I have much, I, I am much respect for Japan. That's one, 
that's one of my favorite, like I've never been to Japan. There was one opportunity for me to speak at a conference and at a conflict. So I ended up recording my talk and yeah, which was a, I recommend uh, it highly I, to everybody. Yeah. I regret, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a huge fan, like, uh, you know, sushi, the culture, all that stuff. Yep. So it's uh, a wonderful place. Do you speak Japanese? Skoshidake, which means a little bit. I was pretty good when I lived there. You know, I went there in 1991, right before Low End Theory came out. I remember coming home and Low End Theory just dropped when I got home to New York. I lived there for a year, never fluent. It's a very mm. difficult language to learn. And I was crazy because when you're a 21-year-old kid, you don't make the connection, hey, this would be a really good thing in my life if I would actually spend this year really, really learning how to speak Japanese. But I was much more interested in dating girls and partying and just being a just out of college guy, making way too much money in my first job in Japan and then learning the language. And so I learned like the language of the kids that I was, I was a a junior high school teacher. I learned the language that the junior high school kids were speaking, which is kind of like this funny slang that I know that makes Japanese people laugh when I talk it because it's like <laughs> it's like talking to an eight-year-old kid. <laughs> um, it's kind of probably like uh, my Russian. That's yeah, like right. It's kind of like pigeon. people. Yeah, people make fun of me when when people just came and they speak Russian really well. I'm like, I I know how to speak Russian. Right. And like, they laugh at me. Right. We speak eight-year-old Russian. Yeah, eight-year-old. Russian for eight-year-olds, Japanese yes. for eight-year-olds. <laughs> with, with an accent. Too, exactly. But, but uh, you which, still get laughed. It's a good, it's a good su- segue to talk about music. So mm. one of the things that we did on one of the episodes, we were going through the list of songs. So maybe we can kind of dive into that for a little bit. Go yeah, please through, do. Uh, the songs. Maybe uh, talk about, as we're doing that, also our Desert Island Discs. I remember when I was when I was working at Tower Records, that was a big thing. Like they even had a little aisle. These are your Desert Island Discs. So these are <laughs> the these are the albums that you would take on a Desert Island with you, and you would listen over and over. This is your that's hilarious. Your, you know, it, yeah, it could be songs that you love, like you want to replay the same song. But I think albums are better. Can I just interject to to tie this all into yeah. Japan for a minute? So I went to Japan last year. They still have a Tower Records in Japan. And not only do they have a Tower Records in Japan, but it's exactly the Tower Records that we remember from the 90s that has all those little um, areas where you listen to the CDs with your headphones and you press different buttons. It's it's called the Muse Machine. The Muse Machine. They still have those. It was one of the great experiences to go back and like basically was like being in a time machine, except that I was in Tokyo. And my son was like, this is the greatest thing. Like we spent like three hours in that store. They should just bring him back. People, kids love it. They yeah. don't care. They love the experience of going into a record store and be able to like listen to discs. And so anyway, I'm just, that, just divert. There is a Tower Records in Shibuya in Japan. And if you were ever in Tokyo, if you don't go there, it's like six levels. Every level is a different type of music. Yeah. And it's, it's amazing. For those that are interested, there's a Tower Records documentary. Oh, really? And they talk about, and they show that store. Oh, okay. It's the only one left in the world. They left it and they love it in Japan and it's like retro and they yep. love all that old. So yeah, I agree with you. They should bring it back. It would I be do hit, get a huge hit. Tower Records exists in some form or another right now because I get these ads that you can go buy them online, like t-shirts and, and music and all that stuff. But I completely agree with you. When I talk to kids about record store, they, they have no idea what I'm talking right. about. And yet they this, really like them. Like we, they just oh, yeah. open a vinyl store in my neighborhood and my son, it's all he ever wants to do is go to that store and look at vinyl. Like they, so there, there's something there for all you investors out there. Maybe it's time to reinvest in music let's, stores. 
Let's do it. I think that'd be great. <laughs> All right. After this pandemic. So, so to, to get back to the point, so you, yeah. just, you know, my ADD way, I'm getting you back to the point. You had started this list of telling me now, what was the list was music that has. Yeah, so it, it's in my book, right? So I just finished my book. One of the things that I've been asked for, it's uh, this is what I wrote. So I'm often asked from people who know, uh, who know me for recommendations for albums and suggestions for new things to listen to when kicking back cannabis music been intertwined for thousands of years i can make a list of several hundred albums but here's a sampling mm-hmm. not in any particular order and i purposely have listed only one album per band obviously you know for certain bands i can list many many albums but in that uh they are my desert island discs but some of them are ones that i have a certain feeling for that create an experience in my life or associate with an experience in my life that I had. So as I go through them, maybe I'll point some of those out. Maybe we can exchange our lists. Uh, yeah. If you made uh, yours, but I, I've got well, some thoughts and and I'll, okay. I'll weigh in. I don't always know the records that well that you mentioned, but sometimes I know them really well. So I'm a little tired today because I was up really late. I get caught up in these things. I, get, I go into the YouTube hole. I start <laughs> looking up the songs and I'm like, oh, this song. Let me let me yeah. copy and let me introduce John to this song. Because one of my favorite things to do is introduce people to music that they haven't heard. I love it. So if I heard something, I would love to introduce somebody to. So I kind of dig deep and dive really, really deep in this stuff. So we stopped at Bob Marley Exodus. My next one was uh, Rage Against the Machine, oh. the very first album. That is Thoughts? A- uh <laughs> I think I mentioned this the last time. You know, Rage is a group, a lot of that music I've been introduced to through my son because when it was popular, when it first came out, I was not listening to that kind of music. And then my son started listening to that music about five years ago and I couldn't like get enough. We actually went to a a Rage, Chuck D, Prophets of Rage. Prophets of Rage. Yeah. We we went to a concert. Yeah, with B-Reels in it. It is like one of the greatest concerts I've been to like in the last 10 years. It was incredible. I've definitely gone down the rabbit hole of rage. I don't know why I didn't really recognize it when it was came around the first time. So I would love to hear your the first time you heard rage and why that record made, meant so much to you. The energy before I even got into the lyrics, which are pretty powerful if you really get into the lyrics, the energy of the music. Because at that time I was listening to all kinds of stuff, like hip hop and bands like Biscuit were coming on. That they were trying to do this rock hip hop kind yeah. of thing. And there's all these bands, and we talked about it before too, and the bands like 311. But when Rage came out, the energy of that band from the very first chord, I was hooked. I was like, holy shit, I cannot believe these guys are heavy, but they got grooves, they got hip hop in them, and the message. So to me, that it really, really connected. Uh, that first album was just amazing. Yeah, it was a great combination of what the best of what hip hop was doing really smart lyrics and then rock hip-hop was kind of corny with the rock stuff especially in the beginning like i can't listen to like walk this way or i love walk this way the song by aerosmith but like when and that's actually one of the better hip-hop rock things but like some of the stuff that hip-hop was doing in the kind of late 80s when they would try to put like electric guitars it was really cheesy and rage against machine like took it to like a whole different level and i consider rage it's like a weird hybrid of like hip-hop and an alternative rock it's it's really interesting and also like surfer and then very political like they also kind of adopted a little bit of like 
you know, what Chuck D and Public Enemy were doing. Yeah. Well, so I think Prophets of Rage kind of fit that. Perfect. Thing. Yeah, it's perfect. Continue that. But Tom Morello, what I really found, besides Zach's lyrics and everything that he was uh, uh, talking about and singing about, the ability to play your guitar like a turntable. Hmm. That really appealed to me because he's sort of scratching on the guitar. If anybody wants to go and really, really listen to that, uh, it's amazing to be able to hear what Tom Morello is able to do with his guitar. Not only is he an incredible player, but it's it's innovative. It's something completely different. So yeah, also a dad at the, my kids' preschool, but uh, which was pretty cool. But I didn't get the I didn't. He was it was after my time, but I've heard from others, and that really made me jealous that I didn't even get to like talk <laughs> to him and like you know parent bonding. Time. He's around. I saw him last week at the CVS. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's definitely walking around. <laughs> That's the funny thing about living in LA. These people actually live here and you see them. And yep. you want to be a dork. So that album was really influential. Was there, was there one song off that album that meant a lot to you? I mean, killing the name of uh, it's just uh, it's it sort of every single time if I want to work out and I don't have the energy, I put that on. And there's something to that that just goes right through my whole body and I want to move and that, that song creates energy for me. So yeah, that probably is the one song. The whole album's amazing, but that one stands out. <clears throat> Nobody was doing anything like that. And then a lot of people started to just copy it. Like you said, like Limbiscuit. all these guys kind of came out after yeah. that was happening. That's true. Um, I also have to, uh, I made a change on my list because I went back and listened to the Beastie Boys albums that I, I love so much. <laughs> Uh-oh, addendum. <clears throat> Uh, yes. <laughs> are we allowed and, to do that? <laughs> We're going to well, make the rules. Yes, you are allowed to do that. Yes. I mean, there, I'm, I have ADD, so I'm, allowed, yeah. I'm an out-of-the-box thinker. What I did was I listened to Paul's Boutique, every single song, really, really sat down, listen, then listen, check your head. Hmm. First of all, check your head has double the songs I think that uh, Paul's Boutique does. But for me, I picked check your head as my Beastie Boys album instead of Paul's Boutique, even though I picked it first. I understand that there was a huge influence, and I listen to it. And I love Paul's Boutique, but more songs on uh, Check Your Head connect with me than Paul's Boutique. I think that album's uh, is like timeless. It's incredible what it's got. Um, oh my god! I mean, there's so many. It's crazy. I mean, um, past the mic. I, I, yeah. Like yeah, it's a, it's amazing. It's an amazing album, and it changed so much. I didn't remember the videos that were. You know, you're watching Beavis and Butthead on the MTV and they come on and it's like, what you want? So what you want? I, I mean, it's amazing. Yeah, what you want. Amazing. Professor Booty. Oh, yeah. Every freaking track on that is... What you want has an absolutely unbelievable video that I think was directed by Spike Jones. I actually might get sued by admitting this to you, but I used the Beastie Boys, um, that font that they used, I used for my... Um, my, my logo of my Write About Now podcast that I do because I love everything about that record and I love the font they used. People sometimes will say to me, you know, you could maybe you should have been a Beastie Boy, like as if because I was, you know, so into hip hop and I was a white guy growing up in New York and we're around the same age. And I'm like, why, why not third base? Yeah, That's exactly. Absurd. Yeah, well, it feels like it's a little, uh, you know, maybe I, I probably more like Vanilla Ice. But um, to me, like I used to have almost a hate relationship with them because I was like, God, I want to be doing what they're doing because just everything they do sounds so fun, you know, and they just had such a good time doing it and such appreciation for, for hip hop and for music and sampling and all the stuff they do. I've heard some rappers complain they feel like that almost like the BC boys were making fun of hip hop, but they weren't like there's so much love for hip hop in those records. And even though they were funny records, they're mad fans of hip hop. Like there is no making fun of it. And yeah, not and they definitely took it to a different place 
not made it like better or anything, but they just did their own thing with it that was very unique and like deserves a spot in the sort of hip hop hall of fame of like, it's not just like a bunch of white boys trying to be black and trying to do it. Like they, they did, they had their own spin on it. I no doubt. Yeah, I absolutely agree. I, I think they, they do get respect uh, from the hip hop community as far For as sure. I'm going to go back and introduce you to a couple of things that you weren't uh, sure about. <laughs> so we're talked about Jamiroquai. Oh yeah. So I want, I want to introduce you to a song that is the best use of a didgeridoo that I believe uh, was ever done. <laughs> now what's a didgeridoo again? It's an Australian long uh, kind oh, of right. uh, like wooden a... instrument. If you hear in the, in the song, that's really the didgeridoo being played on his first album. Right. Jamiroquai's first album. And what's the name of the song? The song is called When You Gonna Learn. got a great voice and it's kind of like that jazzy hip-hoppy thing that was kind of popular in the in the early 90s and uh, originally he was signed to maverick madonna's label and when he got signed to sony it was the first time they signed a 12 album deal unprecedented at that time and he, the kid was in his early 20s never really made it big in the u.s but he is huge all over the world except for that virtual insanity song i think you know, part of it, I feel like, is his name. It's like impossible to say. <laughs> Maybe it's <was laughs> well, bad marketing. his name marketing. is Jay. That's not even his name. Everybody says, Jamaraquai. His name is Jay. It's JK, but the group is called Jamaraquai. Right. And that's where... Now, whatever it's... happened to him, is he around still? Do you keep... Yeah, tra- yeah, he's around. He's a huge car collector. He the races cars. He was supposed to perform at Coachella, and he had a huge concert in uh, Brazil, like over 100,000 people last year as well. Wow. Pre-COVID. All right. Why you, I'm, why convert. You I'm a convert. I'm a convert. I'm going to, I'm going to go a little deeper into my Jamiroquai. <laughs> share one with me and I'll, and I'll share another one with you. I mean, I feel like maybe it's too on the nose, but since we were talking about low end theory in the beginning of this podcast, we can come full circle. Low end theory by Tribe Called Quest is probably top three greatest rap albums ever made. It was a complete life changer for me. I have been listening as we've said on this podcast, to hip-hop since, like, the early 80s. I love hip-hop. I kind of felt like I came to it a lot earlier than a lot of people, at least a lot of white people. And that record came out, and it's like every so often, you know, a record comes around that completely changes the genre, and that was one of those records. Everything worked. It was incredible. The flow was like nothing I'd ever heard. The samples, you know, the idea of kind of using... Jazz. His old dad, jazz record, bebop records, 
and then putting like a hip hop beat over them. And the whole idea of low end theory was that he was upping the bass. So like the bass is so loud in that record. It's like magnified like a hundred times and it just like gets in your chest when you hear it. They put a lot of rappers together in groups and for some reason, those two, Fife Dog and Q-Tip, when they're together on a record, there's just something beautiful about it. It's like poetic. Like they just have their flows and their voices are so different, but they complement each other so well. There's definitely not a song on that record that isn't good. It changed. Well, you also had the, the Ali Shaheed Muhammad. I mean, the, yeah. the beats were, were amazing. Yeah, we got a shout out to, to, to <clears throat> yeah. the producer Shaheed Muhammad. But also, it, I don't know if there's a better album, like a better start to an album. Like to start off with excursions to yep. really, I mean. I'm so glad you said that. Because I, it's funny, that song, Excursions, is one that. I feel like it's never like played in like, oh, the top 10, you know, Tribe Qual Quest record. That's the song that I listened to when I first got the record over and over and over again. Yeah. I love the way it started. And yeah. it's one of the great opening songs and it's completely underrated. But yeah, just Q-Tip and that old bass, like stand-up bass from like his father's like record collection of like 1950s, right? And then him just... Yep. And then him sort of introducing this concept of his record, which is like back in the days in the Boulevard of Linden, you yeah. know, before I had status, before I had a pager. Yeah. You know, you could you could find my daddy listening to bebop. I said it reminded him of hip hop. Yeah. He's he, you know he said my music reminded him of bebop. It's kind of yeah. like we're coming, you know, full circle here from like what his father was listening to, what he's listening to. Yeah. And we have to remember Q-Tip when he recorded that. I think he's not even in his twenties yet, so he's just a kid, and he's like, here's the new sound. And it, it just ushered in a whole new type of hip-hop, this conscious hip-hop, the native tongues hip-hop. People sometimes will ask me, well, what are some like, three records I should listen to? Like, that's one of them, like Low End Theory. There's really never been a record like that again that changed the genre so much. I mean, maybe there has been, you know, you could say, like, some of the later hip-hop records. And not only did it change the genre, it was really freaking good. <laughs> it was really uh, it's fun. A, it's amazing. It's my favorite, and I absolutely, absolutely agree. Now, <clears throat> there's a documentary... History of Blue Note and Q-Tip is in it. And they talk about the bebop samples, all the samples from all the actual records that they use to make, you know, those uh, songs and some of the other native tongue uh, albums that were put out. I mean, you wouldn't have been able to make, unfortunately, he wouldn't have been able to make that record now because of the sampling rules, but I'm glad that he would. and, And I'm glad that he did. And I think it kind of shows you that you can actually take samples from old records and make them better or just do it in your own way shows you that it wasn't just like karaoke they're not just like singing over you know old jazz records it like changes the whole way that those records were thought it's almost like interpreting those records in a new way it's just so brilliant and i don't even know if they knew what they were doing at the time because they were so young but they were just doing what they thought was sounding good like most great musicians michael rapaport does a documentary mm-hmm. on the tribe he directs and I highly, highly recommend it for anybody that's into hip hop or in a tribe. Just watch the relationship between Q and and then Fife. Fife. It's just that in some ways it's a bit of a sad movie because then yeah. Fife died shortly after that movie was yeah. made. And I think there was a lot of unresolved may almost makes you appreciate you know, you want to appreciate your friends because you just never know when they're gonna die. Because those guys were such good friends and that movie really captures a lot of the antagonism and um, acrimony between those two guys and they loved each other so much like brothers but when that movie was being made they were fighting <laughs> oh yeah yeah, yeah right. well for the sake of time because we can geek out on 
specific albums. You gave one, I gave one. We'll continue to do that and keep that as a theme. Yeah. I have probably 50, so we can do this for 50 hours at least. We could always do like, and now our desert, now we do, and now our desert island tracks. And like each episode, we'll just introduce a different track that we love. I think that's a different different record. Yeah. In talking about music, I watched the show, this docuseries on uh, Netflix called Song Exploder. People probably know that it's it's a podcast. I've listened to podcasts and I think it's incredible. I'm going to butcher the guy's name. It's uh, Henry or something that is uh, the guy who does the the host of it. Yeah. on the podcast and in the television show, which I think is now on Netflix. Yeah, it's an incredible way for him to be able to isolate different tracks and, and really, really dig deep in people who are really interested in music. But this one episode, super, super connected with me. It's the one that Alicia Keys does a song. I think the song is called Three Hour Drive, mm-hmm. uh, something that. The thing that really connected with me, resonated with me, is how to create the actual song like from nothing from scratch they get together and having that synergy the thing that really really resonated with me and actually made me emotional there's a, a part of it where it talks about what the feeling is that you're trying to convey so there's a guy his name is samfa samfa, samfa yeah and he's like an english yeah. jazz musician yeah never had heard of him but i mean what an amazing talent yeah just amazing voice and the way he plays But this is the thing that really got me. She sings a lyric and connects that lyric to being a mother, to Mm -hmm. have given birth to her kid. Sampa, he lost his mother. He sings the same exact lyric, but he connects it to the transition, the passing of his mother. And if you listen to isolated vocals, his vocal is so sad. Mm-hmm. It's like, it, it makes me cry. Her vocal is so happy, right. but it's the same exact vocal. So I just found this such an amazing way to be able to connect in the creative process. Because I'm not a musician. I don't, I don't write songs, I don't, I don't, but there are certain songs that you can hear and just kind of hits you. And for me, it seems to be the songs that are sad. So like in my, in my list, I have, you know, I have albums like Mad Season, for instance. So for those of you that don't know, this is Lane Staley's uh, side project, lead singer, one of the singers of Alice in Chains who passed away. Extremely, extremely sad. That's one of the last things he did before he passed away. But for some reason, there is a connection to that. Maybe it has to do with the raw emotion that he connects to. What are your thoughts on that, John? I was really moved by that episode as well. And I think what is really interesting is they didn't go in to that recording session with that idea, like, I'm going to sing this lyric, and then you're going to sing the exact same lyric. It was, they just did that in the process of writing that song together. I mean, one of the great things about that documentary is it shows you how songs are written. You sort of think of like Alicia Keys sort of sitting in her room with a piano, like, you know, no, there was like a very collaborative thing. She's in the studio with her producer and with Sampa, and they're just kind of trying out a lot of different ideas. And I think she has the idea that like, why don't you just sing exactly the same lyric but in your way and she's not even saying and sing it in your way because your mother just died and i just gave birth like they're not they don't have that it was happening naturally right it was just where they were and i feel like that's such great art when you're so authentic to who you are they only later explain why it works you know but i think when it was happening it wasn't thought of that way they didn't think let's it wasn't thought out it was just a beautiful expression and just the fact that he's singing the same lyrics as she was, right? That was even kind of an experiment. Like, 
you know, in most duets, it's like somebody sings their thing and then the duet person responds with their thing, you know. Um, But this was like the same lyric, just sung in a different way to capture where they were in their lives at that time. It was a really beautiful documentary and a very beautiful look at the way songs are written and yeah. I wasn't even familiar with that song. Is that a new song or maybe it was made? Just I wasn't for... familiar with it either, but now yeah. I, I really like the song. Yeah. And I it's love... good marketing for this song because it makes you want to get down with the song. It, right? It's a great song. I mean, she's incredible and she's so talented, but you're absolutely right. The collaborative process because different people create music differently. Yeah. And you think about this way. I kind of use the analogy. Prince was prolific. Mm-hmm. I mean, he not only performed and, you know, Purple Rain is one of my all top and, but he also wrote so many songs for so many other people. Right. And they don't, people don't know that. I know. So like an example, he wrote nothing compares to you, right? He wrote it for himself and he performed it, but he gave it to Sinead O'Connor because he thought that she connected to it differently than he did. So, and it became a huge hit for her. And then Chris Cornell also did that song, Nothing Compares to You. And he does it in a really different way, also emotionally connected and also in a sad way. When you hear Prince's, it's more of a sexy type of uh, yeah. version. Right. That's Everybody has their own. Like, and when you hear Sinead, it's like, holy shit. I mean, this girl is like, she is hurt. And and Chris, you know, obviously, uh, you know, we know what happened, but it seems like there was a, that song had a cry in it. Mm. For some reason. So I, I find it, I find it really fascinating. There's a lot of music that's being made that's just music that's being made and people are singing it and they may be extremely talented and have a beautiful voice and it's arranged correctly, but it's missing that element of connection to the soul. If you're not able to connect, even if you didn't write the lyrics, if you're not able to find someone like an actor uses a method to be able to go back and connect to that, I feel that that's missing in a lot of music that's out today. I don't want to be that old guy. Oh, you know, it's the, back the kids these days. Well, hey, yeah, listen, Alicia Keys, that's a, that's a new song, so we're not being <laughs> so bad. We're, we're represent, we're, that's a show to look out for, and we should watch all the episodes because I think they actually do have some, I think, Ty Digga or something. They're going to have like a young rapper on there, and I'd be really Yeah, Ty Dollar Sign. Ty Dollar. Yeah, I think they have Lynn manuel Miranda. He did yeah. do the Hamilton thing, which, you know, that's, uh, I think, extremely talented, just doesn't really connect to me in that, in that right. way. But it's great, and they do REM, as you said, Ty Dolla Sign. Yeah, I think yeah. for anybody creative listening to this, and, and anything you do, you don't have to be necessarily a creative profession, like a writer or whatever, or a musician. There's a lesson to be learned from those shows about being true to yourself, about not being afraid to try new things, like just dabble. You know, it's not always going to work, and I'm sure they don't show you in that the amount of times they're like, eh, that didn't work. That was probably like... That documentary is probably culminated over like days of, of just let's try this, let's try that, let's try this, sure. you know. And For then sure. they found it, and it was real. And I thought that was pretty cool window into how good creative, you know, works. I think there's also really bad <laughs> creative where it's like let's just make this sound exactly like this, and it, and don't worry about what you're doing. We'll just fix it. In, yeah, in, in post, in, right? In post, yeah. We'll just fix it. Don't worry about it. We're going to have some guests coming on uh, very shortly, and we're going to ask some specific questions. But before I ask the guests the question, I want to ask you, what has cannabis meant in your life? I'm curious. It's a very interesting question for me, because right now cannabis is actually a means of income for me. (laughs) 
because <laughs> I edit green entrepreneur me, me too. and you too. <laughs> so cannabis to me, I see, not only is it green, but I see green. Cannabis has been, I have a love-hate relationship with it. It has, I wouldn't say hate because I don't hate it. I'm, it confuses me. Um, what it's meant in my life is that it's opened me up to new possibilities and new opportunities, both health-wise, but also professionally. Uh, without cannabis, I wouldn't have this podcast. I wouldn't have met you. I wouldn't have all these new people that I'm meeting, this new company I started that's a podcast production company. None of it would have happened without cannabis, this sort of shared thing. And most people think of cannabis as actually the plant itself and the the medicinal and wellness benefits of cannabis. And I have some of that experience with CBD, not as so much with the THC part of cannabis. But for me, cannabis, it's a culture, it's a community, as well as, you know, just what it is as a drug. So I guess that's what it's meant to me is that it's been a way for me to connect with myself and with people that I wouldn't normally have ever met in my normal life. And so in that way, it's been really like a great fact force in my life. How about you? Yeah, nice. Well, should we end on you? Because that's a whole other episode. Maybe we'll open up the next episode with what cannabis has meant for me, because I know that it's had more personal yeah. wellness benefits for you. Well, I can do it at a very high level. For me, cannabis is partially vindication. Mm. And I can unpack this in, in future episodes, but my story has started with, I found cannabis to be something for me and I went against the grain. Mm. Every single person in my life, including my parents, including my friends, everybody turned on me for a reason and said, this is a drug, you're ruining your life, you're angry when you're on cannabis and all these different things. And, and I felt different. I felt the opposite. I felt I was always angry and cannabis actually made me not angry. And I felt the entire time that something, this plant is connecting to me in a different way. So now full circle, having my parents, having people in my life that were, that are now saying, Oh, you, you're doing so much good. Thank you for doing this. And we're taking uh, meds that you're preparing that you've formulated all that stuff makes me feel like the journey is for something. There's a purpose cannabis. I'm connected to that from purposeful standpoint. And, I, you know, I was interviewed recently by somebody that are asking me, what do you want to achieve? And for me to be able to prove in some way that this is therapeutic, all there's, and we know about the history of this, why it's illegal, but there's therapeutic qualities that I see all the time, every single day, uh, you know, people emailing and people texting and just having conversations that I know. And some people do have adverse uh, responses. And sure, they have adverse response to any drug. And it's okay to call it a drug because every single medicine is a drug. Yeah. And you know, sugar is a drug. All right. these things are drugs. It's okay. And there's a personalized experience that people have. But this connection to the purpose of trying to make sure that people understand that this is something that needs to be studied, needs to be evaluated, and can be extremely beneficial for many, many, many people. And there's a reason, you know, why it's not available to us. And it has nothing to do with the ability of this plant to produce these effects for people. It has to do with many, many different reasons, business, politics, et cetera. So that's my connection. And, and you're absolutely right about the social aspects. The community is an amazing community. It really when, is. When we get together, like MG Biz, uh, I don't know, we're 30,000 people last time we got together. I don't even know how many. 
But I remember going the first ones. I mean, maybe there was a couple thousand people, but to go from so small to enormous and see people from all over the country you haven't seen, you haven't spoken with and build that community. Yeah, I, I think. And generally mo- the people in the cannabis industry are, have really defied my expectations of like, they're not like, dude, uh, potheads. They're like really thoughtful, <laughs> kind, want to help the world. A lot of them are in the business because it's helped them so much. So they want to share what's helped them so much with the world. You know, there's always going to be opportunists and, you know, a bunch of people like that. But I find generally speaking, it's a very uh, impressive and, you know, warm community. And it's a, it's yeah. a nice community to work. And I wish they spent more money. They're a good bunch. We're getting there. With them. And I really appreciate you being candid because I'll tell you, most people don't speak about having an adverse experience. They're too cool. Oh, uh, you know, yeah. We, we well, yeah, I feel like if that conversation isn't being had, it's not honest because most people you talk to who aren't people who are really big cannabis users, yeah. you know, will say that I had a bad experience. You know, I mean, I, mean, I talk to my friends when I, do I say I'm working in a cannabis, I would say like nine out of 10 are like, oh, I can't smell cannabis. Like I have the worst experiences. And I always say to them, have you tried CBD? Like, there's other opportunities, you know, or did you know that, you know, you can get like a one to one or a 10 to one CBD to THC, you know, tincture mixed now. And or you might like take that. a DNA test and find out yeah. what. <laughs> exactly. To end on that. Because cannabis is personal. Exactly. Every at, cannabis. Yeah. Endo, endo DNA. But Joe Rogan was talking to somebody a while ago about psychedelic experiences. And they were talking about, is it really a bad experience or is it, an exploratory experience. It is something else that's going on that you're resisting because it needs to come out. So this is not- That's a very good topic. We can can definitely discuss what is really a bad experience. What what does does it really mean? Because people have bad trips, but what is that? What Mm. is a bad trip? So So interesting. By the way, I just, as you were talking, I got a little news flash that Eddie Van Halen died. And I thought, you know, since we're doing a music. Oh, shit. Yeah. No way. Yeah. 1984 so... is on my top album list. Oh, man. So since we're doing a wow. tribute, I think we should end with a little tribute to, to Mr. Van Halen, who's obviously been had an impact so much on everybody's lives. Yeah. Wow. And uh, uh... so, uh, Eddie Van Halen, this episode's for you, and we're going to send you out. What song should we close out with? Hot for Teacher? <laughs> Why not? <laughs> I rem- probably watched that video a thousand times on MTV. That's why I was thinking. <laughs> I'm like, should we go Panama? Or- yeah, yeah. I like Hot for Teacher. Let's do it. Anyway, rest in peace, Eddie Van Halen. Yes.
Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Are you looking for the next great cannabis business to invest in? Then you need to check out the MJ Bulls podcast. Hi, I'm Dan Humston. Join me each week as I speak to both cannabis entrepreneurs who are raising capital and cannabis investors who are investing capital. Our 10-minute episodes are perfect for the busy investor. Start listening to the MJ Bulls podcast today, wherever you listen to podcasts, and who knows, maybe you'll discover the next cannabis unicorn.